So welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, it is my dear friend, Professor Mike Mascolo here with us today. Um, he is a fellow journeyman in the field of psychology. Uh, we have connected on and off. Uh, and I dare say of all the people I like talking theory with, I don't think anybody tops him. So oh uh, yeah, no, totally. He's got the Psychology Day blog, Values Matter, uh, author of five books, and the founder of Creating Common Ground, a potentially revolutionary approach to collaborative democracy. Hey, Mike. Welcome. Hi, Greg. How are you? Thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> I'm doing well. That's wonderful. Um, so anyway, uh, let's talk just a little bit about your background and some of the things that got you here and got you thinking in such a rich and sophisticated way about psychology. We'll start there. Uh, so Gracious. can you share a little bit about that history? About thinking about psychology. Oh, I see. Well, um, that's slightly different than I thought we were going to go to. No, but, um, no, just in terms of your narrative and your history, whatever, you know, let well, people situate, uh, get situated from. I uh, went to story. a state college in, okay. um, in Connecticut and boy, I was a good behaviorist. <laughs> I was a Skinnerian behaviorist. Wonderful. And then I, you know, went to grad school at the University of Albany. Uh-huh. And um, I tell you, when I was at, 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 at in uh, an undergraduate school, I mean, I, I knew this stuff really, really well. And then I went to Albany and I, I wanted to work with this this behaviorist animal learning guy. And I found out it was all cognition. It was ah. all cognitive animal stuff. So then I switched from there to information processing cognitive psychology. And then it became very clear to me that this was like an internalized behaviorism, if you will. Yes. Uh, oh, I forgot that you're a behaviorist. We got to get to that. Well, we'll and, get uh, to that. Yeah. Sort of. A very <laughs> special one, Mike. I know, I know. You're very special. <laughs> you're special. You're special. Uh, and, um, and then I met uh, a constructivist. Uh, his name was Mancuso, and uh, he was interested in, in constructivism. And uh, it was much broader than uh, all these little narrative, is narrative these little uh, smaller uh, um, uh, psychologies and um, and from there I read uh, uh, Pepper's World Hypotheses and and uh, and uh, began to see that uh, my goodness what we're doing in this field is much you know ought to be much bigger than what we're doing uh, because it's embedded in, in 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 larger theoretical and philosophical assumptions that we tend to just ignore. Uh, I knew I loved you for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when did, actually when did you read pepper just i'm curious uh, pepper in the 80s in the, in the we're talking 80s damn all right you know i didn't wake up to psychology like mid-1990s you're like well, 10 15 years old. ahead remember, of me. remember i'm a little bit older than you oh right right that's right i just think i just think more advanced but <laughs> no nah, nah, less advanced just older that's all yeah so that's oh. where i got to that and then um yeah. You know, I, I, then I went to and worked with Kurt Fisher um, on uh, on um, on developmental uh, developmental relational approach to uh, uh, to psychology, and um, he and I corresponded. Uh, we collaborated for thirty years, right? And um, and this is where I am. Right. So, can do you have a frame for how you describe yourself now in terms of? Your I boy, oh boy, that's tough. Um, this every single frame that you, you, you come up with, you know, it, it's all more it's all more complex. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think of myself as a as a coactive systems thinker, a yes. theorist, uh, uh, or a relational systems th theorist, mm -hmm. uh, 
developmental relational the, yeah, developmental relational theorists is probably the best way of thinking right. about it uh right. but it, even that has limitations you know you know embodiment and that you are the editor of the handbook of integrative developmental science did i get that that's right, right? true with, yes, that's right okay. handbook yeah. of integrative developmental science with tom bedell mm -hmm. uh who is a brilliant mind uh, so, and so integration is very important to me, you know, totally. well, we, we, in our field, as you know, we have, um, we, uh, we have uh, this tradition of, um, of studying the left earlobe, and then we study the left earlobe for a really, really long time. And then we get to learn about it, then we move to the right earlobe, and then we see that there's some similarities to it, you know, and, um, and then we, we haven't even gotten to the ear yet. So, you know, this is what we do in our field, and I find it very, very frustrating indeed. And I know you do as well. Indeed, we totally and, share that sentiment. And hence the, uh, the, uh, the your integrative theory that trans, transcends psychology, right? Uh, and uh, there's an understanding that we got to go beyond the, the narrow confines of this discipline. Totally, totally. Beautiful. We share that. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And so in terms of kind of where, and I know you're passionate about a lot of different things, but where your passion currently lies in psychology, do you, are you? Ooh, uh, um, yeah, I mean, where my passion all has, I guess the way, the best way for, to think about it for me anyway, is that I'm interested in what it means to be a person. I'm interested in what it means to be a person, how, how persons, how individual persons develop. And in order to, to talk about that, you can't just study one part of the person, one part of the quote unquote mind. You have to study an integrative, self-conscious, agentic, moral, intersubjective being. And that brings together, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it brings together so many disciplines. So that's what interests me the most. Beautiful. Um, and our conceptions of who we are, I think, um, influence how we act you know if we think of ourselves as victims we're going to think of ourselves as one way if we think of ourselves as agents we're going to act in another way if we think of ourselves as embodied in obligatory relationships to uh some sort of a hierarchy we're going to think of it another way if we think of that our uh, if our decisions and our souls come from within we'll look within and try to find what's within sadly we won't find much there because uh, at least i think that um uh, our, our ways of experiencing ourselves and what's most important and interesting about human relations comes from relations, relationships, our, our participation in culture, our, our relations to other people, uh, our co-regulated uh, emotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you read Pepper, was it the contextual metaphysical yes. worldview that most obviously oh, captured your frame of reference? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was contextualism. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, for those of people who know, Pepper says, in 1942 that there were four he said there were four root metaphors and this is you know i think it's 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 not been improved upon uh four root it's metaphors. an unbelievably great think. book stephen pepper brilliant book sorry yeah, world hypotheses yep 1942 world hypotheses. berkeley yep. um the four world hypotheses are formism the world is uh is is a bunch of essences Dec uh, um, um, plato uh mm -hmm. mechanism the world is a machine <laughs> uh, organicism the world is a developing organism and uh contextualism the world is a historic evolving event and you know that's fascinating because these root metaphors if you get these root metaphors you know what the person's argument is when you're reading this person. If you can identify their worldview, you know what they're going to say three sentences down the road, four paragraphs down the road, because the root metaphors really do uh, organize our thought. Lake Off and Johnson, our thought is fundamentally uh, metaphorical. And right. 
So, so contextualism. I, yeah, yeah. So for me, tree of knowledge, uh, organ developmental interconnected systems theory, if I had to certainly place uh, the structure inside. I think, and I could be wrong, that Pepper actually wrote a paper once in which he tried to articulate a fifth world, a fifth hypothesis, and it had something to do with systems. Hmm. And what systems does and what relational systems does, if you look at Lerner, Overton, and those people, mm -hmm. right, uh, it's, it's really a synthesis of organicism and um, and, 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 and uh, contextualism. Contextualism? Oh, my God. Is there such a thing, Mike? <laughs> there is. There's a synthesis. Of those There's people. a synthesis that's somehow getting seeded, perhaps right here between two minds. There you go. <laughs> Love it. I'm with you, baby. All right. So um, that's that's yeah. where I am in relation to you. Yeah. No, totally. Excellent. Um, so do you want to, I mean, that's an unbelievably rich uh, articulation. Uh, we talked, to, and I'll just set up people sort of, there's an arc to this conversation that we at least uh, outlined, uh, and then maybe we'll see where we want to go with this. So I wanted to talk with you about psychology. I wanted to talk with you about academy, our knowledge structures, and I wanted to talk with you about the meaning crisis and ultimately get uh, find our way to your vision and certainly our shared vision about some of the things we might do about that. Um, so with that, I think very tight, rich summary of both you and kind of where you are in the field, are the things about psychology, um, about the unified theory, about where you are, about your passions, about your work, uh, about commentary on the field uh, that you maybe would like to dip into further? Um, or does that feel, you know, how does that feel for you? Yeah, why don't we start with, um, yeah, fine, that's good. Let's start with the, I wasn't think, prepared to do it this way, but let's do it this way. Let's start with psychology. Um, and let's start with, um, with some obvious deficits, if you will, that I think you and I both agree upon. Mm -hmm. um, let's ask um, many, many, many people, um, uh, just any psychologist, quite frankly, what is psychology? <laughs> or ask the person, what is the term psychological mean? What does the term psychological mean? And um, from my experience, you get a, a variant of two things. You either get the old, tired, vague, um, it is the study of mind and behavior or of mental processes and behavior, which is a Cartesian split right from the start. You have mind and behavior, mind and body. All right. And so it's very frustrating that in a, in a psychological science that purports to 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 want to eschew uh, spirituality and that sort of thing, we retain this mind body uh, distinction. And then we ask, well, what's the mind? And we get all types of uh, not very clear things like even mental it's a study of mental processes what's a mental process if a process is mental it is defined and if it is defined in contradistinction to the physical we're back to the old mind body problem the it's other true. the other set of answers you get is a kind of a listing approach we what is psychology oh well it's the study of memory and behavior and and consciousness and this well what do all those things if anything have in common what in god's name are we studying um and it seems to me that there's an answer to the question. Um, and when you answer the question, at least from my point of view, in the way that I want to, it transforms the nature of what we do or what we should be doing. For me, um, so if, I, if I ask the question, what is, what is, to what does the word psychological refer? The word psychological refer, for, for me refers to meaning and experience. Mm -hmm. So in other words, a psychological act is a meaning mediated act. Mm. A psychological act is an operation, something we do onto the world, if you will, that is mediated by experience and meaning. 
mm. meeting, meaning mediated operation, a meaning mediated act. Nice. And the second you get to that, any, I can't think of an exception. Mm-hmm. I can't think of an exception of that which we call psychological that is not in some way mediated by meaning and experience. Where meaning, I would define mm-hmm. as the structuring of experience. Mm. Love it. Meaning is the structuring of experience. So I okay. act in the world. When I act, I have experience, awareness, mm-hmm. the, the phenomenal aspects of my doings on the world. World and, 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 right. and, and person are like this. And uh, meaning is the organization of that. Totally. And we organize that in our in everyday schematization mm-hmm. uh, and socially through language. So you've got, um, you've got uh, uh, I have experience. The second I'm able to begin to organize that either with or without language, mm-hmm. that's meaning yep. uh, uh, and representation. And language allows us to not only uh, uh, structure our experience in ways that are culturally uh, and intersub- intersub- intersubjectively defined, but it also makes, it allows our experience to be intelligible to, our, to other people and to ourselves. Language, in my view, is not just something that we use to communicate something that's inside of us. Uh-huh. Language uh-huh. allows us to represent and make intelligible the experience that is inside of us, uh-huh. if you will. I don't think it's inside sure. of us, uh, uh-huh. to both ourselves and to others. Yes. Dang. So you do that, you do that, and you begin to see that all these Yep. How many, how many, how many divisions are there of, 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 mm-hmm. of uh, you know, like 55 oh, or something you know, in division. Take an introductory mm-hmm. textbook. You open it up to sensation, perception, motivation, language, as if sensation in some way could, in some way, is there a sensation that gets mm-hmm. added up to form a perception, which gets to form a thought. That's just, that's just, I don't think that's the way we, we do not function as pieces Mm. There's no sensory or perceptual or there's no environmental part of me. There's no yep. genetic part of me. We need a more holistic view of understanding what it means to be a person. Damn. All right. Brilliant, Steve. Okay. Um, so here's, uh, I'm going to throw a bridging concept out there that I've been playing with lately uh, in you talk, and that's the psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, um, so for me, uh, the psyche... Are we going to get right into our differences or are we going to... I don't know. I, we might get right into our similarities here through this. Okay, that's a, this isn't a very agreeable podcast. So we try to go to similarities and create common ground. Okay, <laughs> hey, here we go. Okay. So for me, all right, here's the... There are a lot of different ways to frame the psyche, but what you just said as the internal organizing, meaning-making system that has experience, well, that's a pretty goddamn good way of defining the psyche in some ways, or at least the way it's landing in relationship to the evolution of my own use of the term. I, I don't think I, that the term appears in my 2011 book at all. Um, and that certainly hasn't been a primary focus of me uh, in relation. And I'm not sure that it's a term that you like at all. Um, but over the last year, uh, the concept of the psyche has been taking shape in relationship to you talk. Uh, and I'm actually gripping it in a way that's fitting with mental behavior. It's sort of the inside outside version of mental behavior, uh, human mental behavior, if we're talking human psyche. Um, and I'm starting to get some mileage about where I can place it. Uh, and when you were talking about meaning and experience, uh, sort of, so the psyche is an epistemic function. It's the organizing, epistemic, meaning making, semantic structuring, and also experiencing function, uh, at least the way it's evolving in mind. So maybe there's a bridging concept there. Is there, um, how does a psyche differ from mind or mental behavior in your view? 
Good. Yeah. So Psyche is certainly the first person empirical perspective from the uh, inside out, uh, whereas behavior, uh, at least the way I'm constructing it, see, my task was always to build from the natural science, third person empirical structure to develop a vocabulary and meta theory that's adequate to the task to explain from the outside, the unfolding patterns, which of course afford you the inside. I'm obviously no crazy behaviors that says there isn't, but the structure of epistemology from natural science that I anchored myself to was committed to that third person empirical view um, in a particular way. Uh, this is starting with the first person quality of the unique ideographic individual stuck into the world, uh, which would then be uh, the psyche from that perspective. So this is Greg's psyche. Uh, that is my meaning-making experiential system uh, that is operating from my perspective. Gotcha. Okay, so I guess we are going <laughs> to dive into our differences. Uh, <laughs> it may be very illuminating. Um, yes, I, 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 that is my, that was my, my very first uh, sense of you was in fact exactly what you just said, that I want to understand the, the person from the third Third person point of view, hence the uh, hence the attractiveness to you of the initial behaviorism. It seemed to me that for you, you recognize very you know quickly that that couldn't be everything because there are quote unquote internal processes, and then you're struggling with the question of how do I coordinate a third person perspective with other perspectives, the first person perspective or the second person perspective, and and that seems to be what you're playing with now. Is that a reasonable mm -hmm. thing to say? Exactly, and first person, but yes, uh, and I capture second person in a way that does bridge you, which do makes us connected because I catch the second person perspective, at least the linguistic intersubjective second person through systems of justification uh, at the human level. And that is going to then connect to the Wittgensteinian uh, hermeneutic co-constructed co-active perspective, at least on the culture person plane of existence that I think we would share. When in your view does the second person frame come into importance, come into being? Um, uh, you got the first here, you got the second, you got the third. Right. Um, uh, so, so the, especially in the hominid line, I mean, as great apes, we begin this capacity and certainly other animals have this, uh, but I would say our unique capacity for shared we space nicely marked by Tomasello uh, and the emergence of our uh, expanded capacity to take the perspective of the other and to create an implicit, pre-linguistic implicit intersubjective space uh, is really key. And then that that shifting perspectival uh, shared reality becomes part of the co-constructed uh, meaning and experience. When in your view does that happen in development? When in your view does does, does a first, uh, second, third person uh, frame or perspective occur in, in human development, development uh, the individual? Early. I mean, we're talking, you know, certainly by a year, it is already starting to, you know, when the first thing an infant sees is the mirroring back of its mother's eyes. And in a particular way, we'll have an attachment architecture that is creating a self-other dancing system uh, and utilizes that as a, I think, as our hominid primate nature to be very grounded uh, from the beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think the entire relationship system, uh, which then serves as an epicenter for experience and meaning, is pretty much co-constructed relationally from the get-go, um, and certainly then in relation is the get is the get-go from infants from from in, from neonate or at, or or at or or at one year as you're saying certainly at the well I mean certainly at birth and then the immediacy of the experience and then it, the cognitive capacity to genuinely shift uh, perspective and then utilize that is obviously a developmental task uh, that then wouldn't I don't know enough about infant 
perspectival shifting seems to me anything less than a year is pretty limited in that regard. The year to two is getting some grounding in it. And then the two beyond then really begins the process upon yeah. which it's grounded. Yeah, I think that the, the study of, uh, uh, of social understanding and social experience in infancy is very, very difficult, extremely difficult. Um, it, it is the place I think that we probably need to go to begin to, to, to try to answer some of these questions. So, so it seems to me that one a, start, a point of commonality is that both of us uh, believe in uh, the very the importance of intersubjectivity. The second, the second, um, the second, uh, uh, second person, if you will, frame. If we want to ex understand how people function, and if we want to understand um, how to explain human, totally. human, human. Absolutely. All right now. Let's see how, um, so you're talking about, um, you've started off with the third person. Now you're looking at psyche, the first person. So you're about the, you said about psyche, you defined it as the internal uh, organismic meaning-making system, the internal organizing meaning-making system, that psyche would be that. And then you, you said that you, you, there was a riff off of what I was saying. I want to suggest that the very internal external distinction is deeply problematic. Right. And that when we begin to think about internal versus external, we've already kind of lost the uh, we've all, we've lost ourselves. The internal external maps directly on the Cartesian distinction between mind and body, maps directly onto the introductory psych textbook the distinction between mind and behavior. We've got the idea that there's inner experience, that inner experience is somehow locked within us, and then there is external experience. And that, I'm sorry, external behavior, that which we can see. And we got this split. And as long as we got this split, we've always got the problem of how does the internal link up with the external. If you start from a scientific point of view, you start with the external and you're trying to go in. You said outside in, gotcha. If you start from a phenomenological or at least an old time phenomenological point of view, you start from the subjective or the introspective out. I think both of those is a deep problem. I actually think that the, what the primary frame prior to the first person perspective or the third person perspective is the second person perspective. It is intersubjectivity itself. I believe that what we call the intelligibility of our experience and our capacity to um, understand the behavior and quote unquote mental uh, operations of the other has its origins in second person experience and language. That, that, that it, is, it is in that first year of life that we can see how uh, through the, 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 you know, right from the start, right from the start, you get primordial levels of intersubjectivity between the oh. child, uh, the, the infant and the caregiver, right from the start. It has to do with probably uh, what might be best called the mirror resonance system, which is probably more than mirror neurons, I, you know, more than that. But immediately you do not have an encased child. You have a child with, who experiences the world directly experiences directly in being aware of my experiences making my experience intelligence intelligible is not direct that's what develops my experience is direct and when i experience i express the baby who experiences a pinprick hunger a wet diaper a still mother expresses that experiences on the face and, and the body and when that gets expressed publicly 
when we when we we use language of our community to identify that expression and it is that language that gives the the baby when the baby commands that language and the people in the culture uh, entry into um uh entry into the quote-unquote mind of, of each other's minds right now here's the important point of that if you buy it mm -hmm. if that's true if it's true that we gain our sense of understanding of self and other through the language that we develop first pre-verbally and then verbally through intersubjective engagement with others then our entire <laughs> methodological foundation for psychology just implodes okay Boom. What that says is that we begin, where do we get our psychological knowledge from? Not by looking inside of us through introspection. Wittgenstein shows that is impossible. I'd be happy to talk about that on another yeah, time. Uh, you're, you're, you're doing the Wittgensteinian thing indirectly here, friend. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we don't do it by looking at people's behavior uh, and making inferences about what lies behind them because we don't experience each other's behavior as that of an automaton. We experience it as person. Where we get our, our psychological categories from is our relations between each other. That comes first. And we create words. And that was words and those become deposited, if you will, into a cultural intersubjective lexicon. And it's that cultural lexicon that we seize upon, I say, in order to figure out what's going on inside of me and figuring out what's going on inside of you, inside. Totally. In, in quotes. Right, in quotes. Now, what does psychology do? Psychology pretends that doesn't exist. Right. Psychology pretends that only exists in our living rooms. Psychology pretends that in order to be a science, we're just looking at the outside. But what, they fa what we fail to see is that the outside is meaningless unless we already have an understanding of, the of what that outside means experientially. That's right. intersubjective. Right. So we're starting in the wrong place. We start from the third person or the first person. You got to start with the second person. And the second you do that, you've got to give up any claims to any claims to hard objectivity, mm -hmm. objectivity begins to become a, a, a very bad category, as does subjectivity become right. a very bad category. <laughs> Hence the term intersubjectivity. Love it. There you go. All right, man. Fucking A, somebody put that on tape. Oh, wait, we have that on tape. You have it on tape. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, beautiful. So your turn. Now riff off of that because... I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I don't have very much disagreement with that. Uh, the only difference is this. Um, I think that it's a little strong. I think Wittgenstein is a little strong uh, that got defined against the objective subjective dichotomy, meaning that you're hundred percent correct that our developmental is this way. You're hundred percent correct that if we talk about human psychology, okay, the epistemological frame of human psychology and its fundamental subject matter in relationship to this, it should be framed in this way. And so for me, I would say, yep, uh, human, human psychology is a human science. The process of co-construction in human science is exactly the second person perspective that it would at least need to be sort of anchored to far more primarily than either a subjective or objective view. Um, and that should be the ground upon which human psychology ought to be built. 
So I, I don't really disagree with that at all. And so I'm assuming that you're saying that once we get outside of the human, things change. I'm saying that, yes, uh, that, that there is what the youth, what to me, what I did with the tree of knowledge, because I was then committed to a natural science epistemology. And my fundamental question was whether or not you could actually create a consilient, to use the E.O. Wilson term, lineage between a psychology that does justice to the way we co-construct reality in a contextualized, uh, co-active developmental manner, and one that is consistent with the way science knows about shit. Um, in, in say physics into biology into then animal psychology. Uh, and then, what does science know about and what does what does science what does science independent of a human psychology know about animal psychology? Well, let's depend on what we define by animal psychology, but if we define it in relationship to what I call the mental behavioral patterns, which are the patterns of behavioral investments that animals display both in nature and under experimental conditions, and then develop the particular kinds of regularities, as your friend Skitter did, uh, we delineate quite a bit in relationship to what we would know about animal psychology from my vantage point. Now, what's interesting about what you just said to me is that that comes from human psychology. It sounds to me that what you're saying, this is certainly what I would say, is that our knowledge of animal psychology, it does not come from a third person scientific perspective. It, can, it only comes from uh, the projections that we make, whether they are good or bad, often bad, <laughs> onto, the, um, onto the animal. There's a, a wonderful um, um, a video, uh, I wish I had it to be able to tell you, with Alistair McIntyre, the famous um, uh, philosopher who wrote uh, After Virtue, okay. uh, a famous Catholic philosopher. And uh, he was giving a talk on the limitations of science. And I wish I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to do the best I can. And he had, um, he was talking about, um, you know, the, 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 amongst the things he was talking about the limitations of when you're talking about animals, about, um, you know, that, that that's not simply something that we find out from a third person perspective. And I remember the question that somebody asked him in, in, in the audience, they said something like, shouldn't the biologists be able to tell us what a good frog is? In other words, the, the biologist, should the biologist, a frog is an animal. A, a, that's a biological thing and not a human thing. Shouldn't the biologists have be able to tell us about the, the animal the frog behavior, frog psyche or whatever? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> McIntyre never expected this from him. He said, hey, I've been involved in this um, uh, dolphin research for a while. Mm -hmm. And we had a team of of, of people interested in dolphin research. We had biologists, we had psychologists, we had animal trainers, we had this and we had that. And we were hitting a wall, hitting a wall until the animal trainers got into the mix. The animal trainers were the ones who knew about dolphin psyche, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. sure. Well, how did they do that? They gained that because they established intersubjectivity, some form of intersubjectivity not very clear what that looks like, but some form of intersubjectivity with the dolphins. They were able to, through their relationships and through the projection, if you will, of, on our own experience and the modification of those projections gave based on what communicative patterns they get back from the, from the dolphin, they, that's when they begin to get insight into dolphin behavior. So no third party 
figuring out of the contortions of the dolphin uh, uh, motor behavior is going to give you insight into psyche. It comes from the intersubjective point of view. So what I'm going to suggest is that the intersubjectivity is Einstein said the entirety of science is refinement of everyday thinking. Okay, and what that means is our everyday psychological thinking, our psychological thinking is a refinement of everyday psychological thinking. And physics is the refinement of what happens when I break the pencil and I drop it in the everyday thinking. So intersubjectivity is right at the center, I suggest. Wonderful. All right. So and, and actually, again, we'd have to tease apart whether or not we really disagree and at what level we disagree. So let's uh, here's what I will say. Science is a human intersubjective construction. I'm with you, baby. OK. Uh, in fact, I would situate it right in the culture person plane of existence. I agree with you. And You're it's right. a system of justification that we get together and create propositional networks. And that's even true of general relativity. Agreed. OK. So, so at a particular level, there's a hermeneutic process by which we get together Absolutely. to create that. And then we have to create particular ways of interfacing with various kinds of entities in nature to extract our capacity to both first describe and then with increasing richness, explain those patterns in various ways. Um, I would agree. I, I found myself agreeing with you all the way down uh, with one possible exception that's probably a matter of simply the use of language, but it gets funky. When we interface with, like it, nature, that's when, that's when I begin to get a little, a little, okay. because that suggests that there is nature on the one hand mm-hmm. and our us on the other, and we are interfacing and that we're finding out what nature is. Let, let me just, we're finding out what nature is. Think, in my opinion, think Heidegger, okay? Yep. Heidegger. For Heidegger, you've got Dasein. You've got being in the world where there are dashes. Our perspective is always in the world. It's thinking in the world, perceiving in the world. You can't get the world out of there. I don't see the world independent, but it's like this. I can never have a third person view or objective view of the world, but that doesn't mean we can't have good, reliable, precise human knowledge about the world so all i'm disagreeing with here is the is the is the um um uh, um, uh, a seeming duality between nature right. and and our experience Beautiful. What you said. okay yeah no i'm i'm completely with you i use that in a particular term but what you were uh, specifying are very appropriate qualifications that i wouldn't have any problem with whatsoever uh, and, and I mean, to me, I do like to differentiate nature from, say, artificial human technology in a particular kind of way. Uh, we can get into Heidegger and what he thinks that the technology is doing to our being in the world. Um, but fundamentally, what I would want to say is, yes, we and this is really what uh, I mean, the root, uh, ultimately, I would say, of what you talk and grounded in the tree of knowledge is like, is what is the proper frame of human knowing that we need to consider by the way in which humans then proceed to generate knowledge? And I would certainly say that what we are lacking is a proper metaphysics of human knowing that situates us in relationship to relating to our knowledge claims properly. Uh, are we getting I'm, that when we talk about, when we begin to talk about intersubjectivity and the corroboration of, of okay. our perspectives, the, totally. our, my corroborating my, my experience with your experience 
and my corroborating my experience of the world with your experience of the world and my corroborating my technology mediated technologically and statistically mediated experience of the world with your is that can begin to get get toward it? i believe so completely and and it really what it, what you are articulating here in my estimation very brilliantly is you are situating a proper framing for the human epistemic process across a developmental contextual view that enables us to frame that properly in relationship to which all knowledge claims are going to reside Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm totally on board with that. And and that and that kind in that context is missed in relationship to some silly idealized notion about what an epistemic third person is. That's an idealized scientist third person view, as if it can be decontextualized from that fucking history, yes. and it can't be. So there's no God's eye. There's no, so there's God, no there's God's no eye view in relationship to that and failure to understand the socio-historical justification systems that put you in that epistemological system yeah. results in you failing to recognize what the actual interpretive structures are that yeah. allowing you to make these claims, which you make as though they're epistemic truth claims from God when they're actually situated in a particular lovely. socio-historical point. Yes, this reminds me of Vygotsky and what Vygotsky had to say about fossilized behavior. Mm -hmm. So we'll look at um, a human behavior, let's say, um, oh, I can't think of anything right now. Let's call it road rage. Okay. So we look at road rage uh, and um, we say, oh, well, there's road rage. There it is right there. That's road rage. Well, you can't have road rage. Where did road rage come from? It developed historically, culturally, technologically. We well, had to have cars first and you had to have roads and you had rage before. But road rage had a developmental history, a fossilized behavior. We look at road rage and think it's always been there and or the like, or memory, even just the word memory, as if there is such a thing called a memory store. Well, that comes from the computer metaphor, right? I mean, um, you could look at it from a comprehension. The term comprehension has a, de has a developmental history. It literally means to grasp around. And so when we use, we think that comprehension is something that exists we're thinking of it as this fossilized end product of a developmental history that we have forgotten. And you forgot the development history, you forget. You, you, you do not have a, the correct understanding of the process that you're looking at. Beautiful. It could have been otherwise. Uh, technical question here, just because actually I haven't asked you this before. Uh, constructivism versus constructionism. Uh, you know, people use those terms sometimes interchangeably. I would like to differentiate them some. Let me throw those terms out there and see where they situate. Yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's a, it's a long, long, difficult thing. And the constructivists don't talk very easily to the social constructionists and the rest of it. Constructivism. Vico, uh, uh, um, uh, I think back to Vico and before Vico, but we're talking Piaget, uh, George Kelly, uh, Maturana, uh, um, Watzlawick. Um, uh, Michael Mahoney, uh, you, uh, Michael Mahoney, Ma Mahoney, uh, Kant, perhaps. Well, okay, the, perhaps he believed that the categories were innate. But the idea that the constructivists tend to think that that what is constructed is the representations that come from the individual action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, social constructionists place the um, the source of the creativity not in the individual but in the relation, and particularly in language. Right. Uh, so that language is a creative system. Uh, a creative system that, you know, you have a word, you're able to generate, you know, meanings upon meanings, an infinite number of meanings from, a, a, you know, a small number of, of elements that the language becomes the tool of, of creation and we are never, ever doing anything um, by ourselves. And um, for me, both, um, you can't have one without the other. 
gotcha. you got to have a theory that um, situates what the individual actor does within a sociocultural context. Uh, of the way I like to say things, it's not entirely uh, right, but in development, I like to think that any new meaning is jointly created or coactively created between me and the other, between me and the world, but nonetheless, internally or individually consolidated. Hmm. I have to actually coordinate. I have to do something okay. to learn. Mm -hmm. I have to do something to learn. Mm. I have to do something to develop. I need to actively put together two ideas. I have to actively split them. But I never do that alone. I always do that in relation to the other person, in relation to the world. And it is always a, so it's it's co-created together. But right. then within that participation, this is Barbara Rogoff does a very lovely with this. I, I seize control and I coordinate that which has its origins in my participation with it, it, with other people in cultural activity or with the world in my in my nice. operations on the world. That's, nice. that's, so that's what you take with you yes. <laughs> to construct. And yeah. also when yeah. I take before mm -hmm. I take that with you, mm -hmm. uh, I as a child or the student mm -hmm. am influencing the other person who is who is right. teaching me or talking to me. And so 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 it's a you know development mm -hmm. occurs on this coactive plane together, which is embedded in the in, in culture, uh, but I'm still doing something within that. Totally, totally. And for TOK aficionados, we're really talking mind here and then culture on top of that at the constructive into constructionist uh, frame, uh, but in terms of that slight difference. And I love the way you interrelated those and the human experience has got to be positioned properly in relationship to both uh, or the nested interconnected net. I like that metaphor of nesting. Yeah, that's, that's a good metaphor, it feels to me. So, so are we going to be able to fix this problem with psychology, Mike? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we're making a huge amount of progress, it seems like. <laughs> and it does seem to be that there's a lot of, a lot of, a, a lot of promising stuff going on. Yeah, you know, I, developmental I systems, theory, relation systems, it's very, very, it's very, very, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, you, it is ubiquitous. We have psycho, bio, psycho, social, cultural. That's a good thing. Um, uh, the influence of Bronfen Brenner and the systems and macro systems and mesosystems is a very, very important thing. The, the, the emergence of inactivism, uh, the idea that, 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 that uh, the human system is coupled with the world in an embodied way. And then is, is but all of these approaches have their origins um, outside of the, they have their origins in a reflective stance that, uh, that, that, that questions uh, the empirical dogma, okay? The empirical dogma being that um, my knowledge comes from empirical observation. Mm -hmm. My knowledge mm -hmm. comes from the, 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 the way the world is. Right. Uh, that's the problem. That yep. is the problem. For some reason, you know, because we import it from from the natural sciences, we think that that there's this empirical world out there that that um, that violates our theories. Uh, the world is autonomous and, and violates it violates our theories and our theory. That's how our theories develop. Well, it's like that. It's like that. Hermeneutics is like that. But there's it's always this way. It's always. I always have experience of the world, but the, but my experience is always richer than my my experience is always richer than my conceptualizations. So my experience and my experience with you will always challenge, and that's where science moves forward. But we can't solve the problem of psychology, if we will, until we get out of this kind of 
I just don't see it happening, at least in American psychology, that not so time soon. Uh, we, until we get out of the idea that in order to be good, hard, macho science, uh, that um, we have to be able to measure the world precisely right. independent of us. That is right. where, that's where we, 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 we falter. Beautiful. Yep. Uh, we, need, we, need we need philosophy, not just philosophy independent of empirical uh, analysis. No, of course not. You can't do that. But philosophy is not just something to do until the scientists come along. Philosophy is what Philosophy is the, is the clarification of our concepts. Philosophy is involved in the clarifying the a priori's of what it is that we're doing so that we know what we're talking about. Too often, quite literally, I believe, we do not know what we're talking about. Self-esteem becomes the scores on a self-esteem test, and we don't know what those scores mean. Beautiful. Beautiful. Or... Or as uh, oh, um, this idea that, you know, a factor analysis, there's one person, I wouldn't name his name, but uh, uh, he says, oh, psychologists are, you know, everybody's afraid of a factor analysis. Why? Because the factor analysis tells you what the truth is. Why? <laughs> because it tells you what the questions you're asking are. You don't know what questions you're asking until they load on the factor analysis. Oh, and then the factor analysis tells you that these four questions are the same. That is the most mind-numbingly wrong thing I've ever heard because it's not the factor analysis of the statistics that tells you what meaning is. It's us. It's our intersubjectivity, the distinctions we make in our experience. Totally. And you can't get that from statistics. Fuck no. That the yellow flower in the middle of the tree, metaphysical, empirical. You have to understand the concepts and categories philosophically in proper relationship to the empirical experiences. And to go back to your point, where the fuck does metaphysics come from? Metaphysics actually is going to be the intersubjective shared meaning of our concepts and categories as we apply it in the world and co-construct it. I like that. It's great. It's good. Yeah, got it. Oh, fucking A. Man, talking hey. the same language in different words. That's good. <laughs> we should have had this a while ago. All right. Beautiful. Um, so is there any problems with the Academy? <laughs> I wonder if it might be better to go to the meaning crisis. Yeah, I was someone actually, I, I, well, we're on the same. Our intersubjectivities are syncing up, Mike. I was actually yeah. thinking the same thing. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, the idea that, um, again, this seems to flow right into, right into the meaning crisis. So, why don't you define the meaning crisis as you do, or I'll, I'll, I'll define it, but I, I mean, prefer you start. I, you... Sure. Okay. So, I mean, the, the term, as I was embedded in the little meta-modern culture I'm in, really certainly is shaped and owned and, and you know, well, not owned, but John Verbeke, uh, Awakening uh, from the Meaning Crisis, was this archetypal lecture. Uh, I think that the, the short idea of it is enormous summer, the way I like to summarize it, is a failure to have a shared sense uh, of what is and ought collectively. <clears throat> Another way of saying that is that the current state of our knowledge, uh, both in terms of orienting us collectively to what is and what ought to be, is in a chaotic, fragmented pluralism. Um, and then the consequence of this can be narcissism, nihilism, disconnectedness, uh, a suffering of the fundamental sense of nourished connection toward a shared purpose. Uh, and that is 
central to the current uh, state of affairs that we need to really reflect on and potentially adjust if we're going to move the system in a positive direction. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there's so many points of, of entry into the discussion from what you said, uh, and the discussion would look differently depending upon which point of entry we selected. I'm going to start, if you will, with the is-ought distinction that you mm. just made, the is-ought distinction, uh, which I think really, uh, really is, is an important one. Uh, and um, the is-ought distinction. So I think that one of the sources of, um, of our crisis of meaning has to do with scientism, mm -hmm. not science or scientific, but scientism. Right. And the scientism, which is the idea that um, I have great respect for science and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 I think that science is the primary way in which we come to know things. Um, even though it's different in the psychological sciences, if you will. Uh -huh. uh, science is not a mysterious process. It's uh -huh. a process of testing ideas against some form of evidence. It's, it's, uh -huh. it's, not a, it's not a, that's all. But scientism is the idea that, you know, science can tell us the answers to all of our questions, solve our problems. If I wanna know uh, the right thing to do, I consult the scientists. Um, and, um, and it's cousin technology, uh, you know, that if I want to solve problems, I'm going to, I can solve problems with, uh, by finding the right technologies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we get COVID. And of course, the, um, the answer to the COVID problem is vaccines. Well, is the answer to the COVID problem vaccines? Yes. But there seems to be a problem with the vaccines. And the problem with the vaccines is that people aren't buying and not everybody buys into it and is, is, is using the vaccine. So um, we have, uh, we have, a, a, we could find out what is, if you will, what is, we could see that we have very good theories of, 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 of viruses. Uh, we have very good theories of, of antibodies. We have very good theories of immunity and, and all the like of it, but we can't just look to science, if you will, to find out what is good. Mm. Science doesn't tell us what is good. Science is silent about what is good. At least science that is in its traditionally understood form which yep. is science tells me about nature and I am somehow independent of nature. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, of course, what we were talking about before, at least with respect to psychological science or social science, I think we were both agreeing that that, that whole is ought distinction is problematic in the social sciences. And I yes. think that in fact, it, it destroys the social sciences. Our, our social scientists tend to think that we must have objectivity and just be describing what is that I suggest to you is impossible Good. in the social sciences. And I can talk mm -hmm. more about that later if you want, yep. but science can only tell us in the traditional sense, what is in nature, if you want to yep. use that. But once we begin to believe that science has these answers, then morality ought, what ought to exist, becomes either assimilated to science mm -hmm. or it becomes uh, up for grabs. It's something mm. that's, that's, that's uh, you know, anybody can have or, you right. know, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, can't be, can't be dealt Fluffy. with. Fluffy. Fluffy. Um, that's the stuff of which, that's the stuff that's going to solve, if anything, the meaning crisis mm. is to realize that we as humans act on the basis of our shared understandings of, of our values. Mm. And it's not, it's, and, and, and the way those values come about is we don't look into our tummies mm -hmm. like, um, like 
you know, um, current versions of meistic individualism, you know, would suggest uh-huh. Sure. Uh-huh. that, you know, uh-huh. I look into my tummy, I find my values and then I can do what I want as long as mm-hmm. I have, if I, I can articulate my values because they're mine and mm-hmm. I have the right to them. No, what we need to do as communities is we need to come together and we need to collectively in a conversation that is never ending, incidentally, ask what is good. Mm. And I need to listen to you and you need to listen to me. And we need to s- metaphorically uh, disconfirm each other's mm-hmm. understanding of what is the good and in order so to synthesize novel, uh, novel understandings, because we got all types of contradictions uh, going on. Uh, is the internet, does, um, mm-hmm. does Facebook, is Facebook, is that just simply free speech? Mm. Or, you know, is, 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 the, is mm-hmm. the responsibility? Those are responsibilities mm. to the public. Those, mm. are, those are novel values. You don't have mm. those questions 100 years ago mm-hmm. in conflict. Mm. Neither one nor the other is necessarily correct. We need mm. something new. Mm. The meaning crisis, I think, is solved once we see that science informs what we do, but does not determine it and that what we do is we use science in the human conversation about what is good, mm. communal, uh, mm. not just private. Hmm. And then that's, I believe, you know, the, uh, the, the just simply asking the question, what is good? Hmm. If we wow. had if we had somebody at the bully pulpit saying we need conversations about what is good. Let's yes. have these conversations. Let us be humble. Let hmm. us have humility. Let us believe that we are each person is acting credibly but based on the world as they see it and then let's try to coordinate that's where that's where meaning wow. and value can come from i believe totally it's like a glue that ties this intersubjective field together yes yeah yep. and we should be attending to that and how to yep. co-construct it effectively so we're moving toward whatever this good is right. as maxwell dialogue as maxwell says you know um uh, we need wisdom we need yeah. practical witness. We need phrenesis. Uh, we need um, uh, 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 we need to focus on, on on what we typically see as these intangible uh, things that science is in- increasingly uh, edging in upon, uh, edging upon. In, uh, but it's not. Right. <laughs> it seems to be. Uh, uh, there's a world of scientific things that we must deal with, but there's also another world that is not scientific that right. is equally as important and can be as equally as rigorous. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Especially if you take this co-constructive trajectory of particular types of context, right? Because we can watch different value systems in different communities evolve in particular ways to yep. make judgments about those kinds of things pretty objectively. Like, hey, World War II in those fucking Auschwitz camps? Bad. <laughs> right? At some level? Um, absolutely. Um, the question objectively comes to mind of... Uh, um, Wow. Um, I contextualize that, by the way. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, the reason I'm, 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 I'm thinking is because um, it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious to a lot of people that that was a wrong thing. Just as I think that there's a lot of things going on today that is not obvious to a mm. lot of people okay. that is going on today. You know, we mm. look at that from, from the time from, from, we say, you know, that should Fair have enough. been clear. Of course. That well, should obviously have been clear. Many people are going along with it, right? Yeah, uh, and we have a lot of movements today. Most that of us would be, going, you know, if be. we're going to be honest, we're going to be honest, we, most of us would be, you know. Although there were plenty of people who were either not Nazis, 
in Germany sure. uh, or who went along with it. And I don't I actually don't know how many people uh, would have considered themselves full fledged. Uh, so probably Real a minority. Nazi. Oh, definitely. Uh, the full fledged. I'm now spark. I, uh, I really don't know that. So actually, let's do you. Uh, so clearly, it seems that you have a frame for the co-construction, the dialogical process, the framing by which meaning and good might be and what we need to focus on. Do you yourself bring a theory of the good at all? And do you, what, do you, do you adopt a particular more ethical, Aristotelian, you know, virtue ethic, deontological, yeah. Kantian, whatever? Yeah, the, the, the approach I take is I call, I call it moral relationalism. Okay. Moral relationalism. And what it says is, um, it's a, it's an alternative to uh, to both moral absolutism and moral relativism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so moral uh, absolutism says, you know, there are universal morals. We should be able to identify them. You know, um, uh, what justifies them is either they're moral, or God says that they're right. that, that, that they're right, or that nature does, or evolution does. We justify in these morally universalist ways. I, right. I don't I don't I think that, that is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, moral relativism, uh, the idea that somehow. Uh, uh, values and morals are somehow relative to culture or relative to to a, a, a situation uh, relative to a culture relative to um, a society or what have you um, that becomes a problematic because of course right. you know um, if that's true then Nazism is something that can be justified uh, yep. uh, can't do that okay uh, um, there's no context in which a Holocaust is is uh, is acceptable uh, um, mm -hmm. Moral relationalism, I suggest, views moral values as not coming from uh, uh, God, mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. objectivity, mm -hmm. evolution, mm -hmm. Kant's mind, mm -hmm. or any other, but comes from relations. <laughs> you deontologicalists out there. <laughs> Sorry. You, it comes from how we relate in context. It comes from our the history of our relation, Love that it. morality is an ongoing, values are an ongoing, continuously evolving, con contextualized conversation totally. in which with every, with every conversation we have, we have the potential for new issues that come up that we don't have any values for. We see it mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And that it's a conversation that is always involves uh, almost a unique combination of constraints mm -hmm. that have to be coordinated at the same time, mm. at the same time. So any, any, if you think of any political issue that we have today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we tend to, uh, to end up, you know, you have one side versus another side. This side says I'm right. That says side says, uh, yeah. says they're right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look very carefully, I suggest you'll find um, uh, issues, constraints and beliefs on each side that if put into the conversation, you may come up with new ways, new morals by transcending them, huh. figuring out what, you know, what is it that that liberal person believes? What uh -huh. is it that that libertarian, what is that conservative person believes? What's the, what, what is the, what is the constraint of the situation? There's huh. a uniqueness in every situation of, 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 of constraints that when, we uh, morality is our attempt to organize and coordinate the good mm. as much good as we can get in those mm -hmm. constraints where mm. the good good is a relative term it's a difficult yeah. term well, it's a tricky for term. me it means three things it means justice mm -hmm. rights okay mm -hmm. virtue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and care mm. nice hmm. for me justice for me, virtue and care beautiful for me every decision we make 
I could be wrong about that. Certainly, it is every, most decisions we make, any decision, most decisions a business makes, most decisions a nation makes, ought to be made with those, those three pillars in mind. Huh. Three bottom lines, not just self-interest. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. Is, what, is, what, what is prudent and just? Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. Who am I trying to be? What virtues mm-hmm. am I trying to live up to? Right. What is the caring thing to do for the other, for myself? Gotcha. And that dialogue amongst those things will always be a complex thing. And you're not going to get it right. You're going right. to get it. You're going to get it more right Beautiful. today than you did <laughs> yesterday. And it moves and it moves. No, totally. I mean, I, once again, I'm reminded of brotherhood here because, you know, I did this in a particular way, did dignity, well-being and integrity. Right. And that, that intersection of sort of meta values. So, you know, uh, care, virtue and justice feels like a very, very similar kind of framing that orients us in terms of the meta values that should contextualize uh, the transjective, intersubjective co-construction uh, of what we are doing together. Dignity is a very important concept right i mean it's it's not just justice right dignity might means that you are sacredly valued and i value you for who you are uh, you have in, intrinsic value uh, so do i can't see how but yes so do i uh, but, um, but um uh but that it brings together dignity brings together your individuality and your right to your own personhood with the social bestowal of sacredness upon you that's you know so so it's not just in the states we very much prize one voice despite i think what hate says uh you know one voice is is dominant and that's freedom yeah you know both the left and the right you know believe in a a kind of a freedom Mm -hmm. as kind of a religion uh where one freedom is of the individual the other the, the other freedom is for um uh uh inclusion or or justice or fairness um, but mm. freedom, yes, but with dignity, with integrity, with with care, with mm. virtue. Mm. Ah, you need the whole system. Love it. You need the whole system, I think. And I don't think we think, I don't think that we think in that way. Mm. Certainly not in politics, we don't. All right, so I'm going to now loop this. We said the academy. Okay. You mentioned Maxwell. You just described bringing people together to engage in dialogue about values and about solving problems. Maxwell argues that actually we could co-construct our universities this way in essence, or at least he makes an analytic argument. What I'm hearing from you though is different from an analytic argument in some ways, although it's certainly there. It's more like a vision for community, for people coming together and creating a particular type of context of relating around the co-construction of values um, that feels very different than the academy is currently organized. And if I look at what we were saying about the meeting crisis, if we were to reconstruct the academy in this kind of ethos and this kind of practice, you could totally start to see how it might play a role in addressing the meeting crisis. Goodness, I mean, I would, I wish so much that the, the academy, the university could, the colleges could do that sort of thing. Uh, the way we are moving right now is exactly the opposite direction. Oh. Exactly the opposite direction. Sadly, you know, look, um, you know, technology drives culture, economics drives culture. And sadly, what we have right here is, is economics and, t- and, 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 and technology and, um, and pandemics and that sort of thing driving 
of the structure of the university and not values. Now, you can't get away from technology and economy and pandemics, uh, their role in, in, in driving, um, in driving uh, the university or any other institution. Uh, but it is a mistake, I think, if we chuck values <laughs> really? We simply give you think values matter, Mike? Values <laughs> well, <matter>. first black. <laughs> <laughs> I think matters matter, matter a lot. And I think that we see in our universities and our colleges these days is so much uh, a function of, uh, the solution isn't clear, but um, survival. Okay. Mm. How do I survive as a college or university? Well, how mm -hmm. I survive as a college or university? I need students. Mm -hmm. I need money. How do I get money? I attract students with attractive, flashy items like credentials, uh, uh, degrees that you can get in 10 months rather than mm -hmm. two years, mm -hmm. uh, degrees that you can do on technology uh, online, mm -hmm. uh, degrees that involve certain types of lighter research rather than heavier research, mm -hmm. if you will. I could be more clear about that, but <laughs> I'm not going to at the present time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it really is driven by credentialism uh, um, at least courses, uh, um, the, you know, our, our universities are fragmented into, it, it's a little credential uh, producing machines. Uh, courses are credential producing machines. They're going to give you your grades so that you can get your credential. And we do not have a focus on learning or wisdom, mm. learning or goodness. Mm. What would our college look like if it took seriously its mission? Uh, or the mission or the idea that what we are involved here is in some way trying to get um, uh, use knowledge for good mm. news use knowledge for good science mm -hmm. or scientific knowledge and uh, humanistic knowledge we're trying to to integrate them uh, so that we can make decisions about individually about our lives socially about 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 our culture collectively about what is the good in our nation what if and that's that's the that's the Humboldtian classical 1806 totally. conception God. of the university, uh, mm. but it's, mm. it's, it's imploding. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, and people go to school. I think they come in with skill deficits and leave with skill deficits. They don't, mm. I don't think that we learn an awful lot. Right. Mm. And insofar as research is con concerned in the Academy, you've got the fragmentation is even the same there. Oh my God. Yeah. We, what would it be like if at least part of us, some of us, a significant number of us were charged or charged ourselves, not only with the question of, 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 of our individual research agenda, but also asking, how does this relate to the good? What is the good? Okay. How does this relate to the larger interdisciplinary matrix? Okay. How does the larger interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary matrix affect what I'm doing? This guy, these phenomenologists over in Germany, does it have anything to do with my perceptual research here in, in the United States? Or uh, uh, um, does, um, does, the, 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 does the axiological understanding of, of, of human values as articulated by A, B, C, and D influence how I do my work? We don't ask those questions Definitely. often. And, and a, the universities could be a place where we could transform not unless we attempt to seize control, use our, try to fashion them at least in part in terms of our values rather than being reactive to market forces. Amen, brother. It's brilliant. And, mm -hmm. and actually it really does. Um, well, the intersection of these three dots 
Psychology Academy and the Meaning Crisis from your worldview perspective, to me, feels very cohering and clear in relationship to both a diagnosis and an articulation of what potential kinds of structural attitudinal solutions might be. Absolutely. So, they could inform each, they must inform each other. Well, they must have a feedback. And then that brings me actually to your vision in relationship to creating common ground, which is of course something that you and I uh, have shared uh, quite a bit of conversations and participations in. Uh, but I definitely wanna, as we begin to wrap this up to think about what it is that you've actually done and to start the process of laying that ground uh, and share a little bit about that journey sure, and that sure. construction. Yep, uh, uh, Creating Common Ground is a nonprofit where it's devoted to trying to, to get people to rethink the way we do politics. Uh, right now, I think what we have is what might be called, we've always had it in the United States, what might be called an adversarial democracy. You've got a multi-party system, you get people who engage in debate, uh, the person who did the debates and they, the ones with the best ideas wins in the marketplace of ideas. The problem is, that ain't how it works. The problem Certainly is that people in a, in a debate, <laughs> yeah, you can argue that you can argue that in its best, a debate functions to create new knowledge. Because I, if I listen carefully to you uh, and you punk, poke, poke holes in my in my vision, if I accommodate to that, I come up with better, 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 and you do the same thing. And that's supposed to be how science works as as well. But what we have right now is we don't have that. We have people retreating into camps based on ideological premises and moral premises that are untested and un, uh, unexamined as ideology. And what they do in their debates is they try to win. And when they try to win, I try to beat you, you try to beat me. I try to get as many people in the world to agree with my ideology and problems don't get solved. We get more and more divisive and we get more and more polarized. The Center for Collaborative Democracy which is what we're trying to create in creating common ground, uh, says something different. It says democracy, yes. Adversarial democracy may, may have, have a place, but boy, it's, it's diminishing. Collaborative democracy means what? You've got a, two groups of people, let's say. You have the Republicans and you have the Democrats on uh, some mm -hmm. issue, gun control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of debating about ideology and figuring out whether the second semester, second semester, the Second <laughs> Amendment really says that or really says that, or I'm going to try to get enough votes for this legislation, 51%, so that I can win, and then now you're pissed off and you're resentful toward me. No. Look at each side. Identify the needs and the position, the needs and the pleas and the human interests that each side is trying to articulate mm -hmm. then once you've got those needs on the table mm. you find ways through the best we know of conflict resolution mm -hmm. to meet those needs simultaneously mm. when you do this you'll often find that there are a thousand ways of meeting of creating common ground creating common ground is not people say oh we gotta find common ground ain't gonna happen i love that i love this yeah Common ground isn't found. It's created. It's created by being open, by being credulous, by refusing to give in to my core needs, but at the same time trying to, 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 to meet yours. So if somebody has gun control, mm -hmm. if, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if the, 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 the gun control 
advocate, forget the term. Mm -hmm. Those people over there, they uh, uh, they want to reduce gun violence in the United States. Mm -hmm. Those people on the other side want to maintain their freedoms over their lifestyle, over the capacity, over mm -hmm. their desire to 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 use guns for protection or for hunting mm -hmm. or the rest. Those two needs are not incompatible right. necessarily. Right. There are ways, if we really focus on the needs of trying to create a safe society with mm -hmm. guns, uh, mm -hmm. while at the same time giving people freedom. Mm -hmm. You get you tell you get both people together mm -hmm. care mm -hmm. about each other's needs without violating your own, without giving up your own. You'd be surprised at how many how much consensus we can get, but we don't do that. We go. Uh, Second Amendment is, is correct. It's not correct. Hmm. You're a bunch of liberal snowflakes. You're a mm -hmm. bunch of Republican wing nuts. Hmm. And 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 nothing oh. ever gets done. Totally. We can do better. We can do better. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, I participated in Mike. He set up a training online course for individuals to participate and watch them shift from the, you know, getting anchored into positions and then reconstructing that from a vantage point of need and holding on at the same time to then, rather than finding common ground, the co-inner construction of common ground back and forth to solve problems together. It's a really, really doable, feasible thing. There's books on this. There's, anyway, it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Thank you. Great. In our group, we had six people and we went through, I taught them the, um, the procedure for uh, creating common ground and uh, I moderated it and we went through three problems mm -hmm. started easy with school uniforms <laughs> then we went easier to capital punishment <laughs> <laughs> and then we went really easy to uh, race relations and police officers and the yeah. police <laughs> super light conversation all three of them amongst the six of us six of them mm -hmm. ranging from all political positions um, we got enormous consensus on each one of these. Not mm. full agreement on the ideologies, but nonetheless, enormous consensus on possible solutions to these problems that transcended the old categories. Mm. It's possible, mm. not easy, it's right. possible. Totally. And so there's a real fundamental thread here to how we're thinking about the way humans as co-constructing meaning-making systems in an intersubjective context in a developmental world should be then understood by psychology in a recursive self-aware loop that affords uh, that and then yes. allows us to then reflect on what the academy sort of has generated, how it's organized in the current society, and then reconstitute ourselves foundationally from essentially this process across a wide variety of different domains to allow us to guide us to create the valued systems and communities that would afford us a hell of a lot better living than we currently are. I agree. Yep, that's lovely. Well put together. If I had to put a label on that, it would be relationalism. 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 How do we relate? New ideas through relating. New solutions through relating. Better science through relating between me and the world. <laughs> Posing questions to what you might call nature. Have nature, that's a, that's a form of relating. Have nature okay. give the answers back if you want to use that term. Right. Relating. Right. So yeah, subjects, objects, fields. No, put them all in a relational developmental context and appreciate that whole. Yes, sir. That's what I'm thinking. Beautiful. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Um, is there anything that uh, you were hoping to talk about today that we didn't My get into? God, I think we got through anything that I thought of 
we were going to do in more. Man, I'm a wet rag. <laughs> well, we, we drained a hell of a lot of knowledge and wisdom out of you. I don't know about that. You drained <laughs> well, something got, out of me. I definitely I drained know, something out of you. It's probably here. I don't know what yeah. it is, though. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll speak for myself. And obviously, you and I have talked for a long time. Uh, but my consolidation of your vision, the whole of it, uh, and my resonance with it, actually just deepened a couple of chords here, my friend. Okay, and I really appreciate it. I feel the same you. way. I feel uh, the same way. I feel this. And I, and that's, let's make it move. Let's make it grow. <laughs> let's make it grow like a relation uh, and dialogue. All right. Brilliant. Uh, so thanks so much, friend. I really Thank appreciate you, you coming Thank on you. by. Uh, it's glorious.